0: Hey, everyone. It's Ben, and this podcast is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash nerdistwriters for a free audiobook download. Uh, Audible has all kinds of terrific audiobooks, uh, and they're just like podcasts, only a little longer, so check them out. Uh, a few that I'd recommend, they – you know, there are – I love to read books about um, – tv and the tv business um and there are a lot of books about movies and we know the tv is better than movies so here are a few that you can check out um definitely check out the war for late night which is by bill carter uh it's a terrific audio book it's 15 hours long and it's worth all of that time um it's about the uh conan and leno late night war and i would even say it's better than the book that preceded it uh, about the Letterman-Leno late-night war uh, called The Late Shift. So check out The War for Late Night on Audible. Uh, another great book uh, just kind of about writing is Stephen King's On Writing. It's kind of the only book you need. It's not about the mechanics of how to write. We're assuming you already know how to do that. Uh, but check out Stephen King's book about writing. And you know, if you're any kind of writer at all, you will recognize a lot of the stuff that he talks about. Um, so once again, that link is audiblepodcast.com slash Nerdist You get a free audiobook download. Uh, check it out. And now here's our podcast.
1: Now entering Nerdist.com It's the Nerdist Writers panel on the Nerdist Podcast channel. Ben Blacker Talking, writing with writers.
2: Writer's
0: talking writing can get pretty exciting, but talk can be enlightening. It's very rarely frightening. writing. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Welcome to the Nerdist Writers panel series, an informal chat about writing and the business and process of writing. Each and every panel benefits A 826LA, the national nonprofit tutoring program. For more information on A 826LA, visit 826LA.org. I'm your moderator, Ben Blacker. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage program in the style of old-time radio, available as a podcast on iTunes and via Nerdist.com. I've written for the series Super Ninjas and Supernatural. With a background as a stand-up, our first panelist spent seven years writing for The Simpsons. He's since written for numerous programs, short films, and twice monthly releases the Dana Gould Hour podcast, which you should all listen to. Please welcome Dana Gould. Welcome him back. Welcome back, Dana. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. I really oh, appreciate it. Twice monthly would be great. It is sort of, right? Isn't it like every other week?
2: <laughs> yes, it's metastasizing into three times uh, uh, every three weeks. Oh, my Because God. I, I've managed to find a way to turn the podcast into a labor of labor. <laughs>
0: That's what they all are.
2: Yeah, all it's just, are.
0: every podcast is a tiny little bobble. that must be scoured over. But it's really—I mean, listen. I'll bring you guys out in a second. But it's really great, and we—we uh, we won't talk about it because there's thank There's you. not a ton of writing involved. No, but um, well, it's you guys should should uh, download it.
2: Thank you, Ben, You're one of the people that convinced me to do it, and I appreciate it. Oh: that.
0: Well, thank you. My wife does not. <laughs> <laughs> That's where she and I disagree. And, <laughs> and it's how you can tell us apart. <laughs> it's the only way: I yep. can tell you With a background as an actor. Our next panelist broke through as a screenwriter With the movies Simon Says and Boys and Girls He created the hugely popular 2008 web series Imaginary Bitches He is the co-developer with Kevin Williamson And the showrunner of CW's The Secret Circle Please welcome Andrew Miller Thank you for being here Andrew Thank you for having me I'm a little loud Can you? Do you guys find that? I think so I'm sorry Who's that talking (laughs) That's your father Ignore him Finally Early film work Included Production work For Roger Corman And co-scripting Piranha 2 The Spawning With James Cameron He went on To work in television On St. Elsewhere Moonlighting Ellie Law NYPD Blue Among other Stephen Bochco productions uh, Co-creating The Birds of Paradise Murder One And eventually Dark Angel Again with Cameron he then went on to write for The Shield, Dexter, and The Walking Dead. A couple of years ago, our final panelist developed Brian Bendis's Powers as a pilot for FX, and he's currently developing Robert Kirkman's Thief of Thieves comic for AMC. Please welcome Charles Egli. Thank you guys for being here. Thank, you, you, for Thank you for having us Correct A little manners wouldn't kill you all
1: <laughs> Mr. Blush
0: um, uh, Chick, I want to start with you And sure. I told you I would uh, you know, jump right to the, uh, the most pressing question I have Which is about your current development project uh, Although I guess it's also sort of about Powers You know, both of these were based on the, comic book They're series. both happening simultaneously,
3: yeah. Are they really? They are Oh,
0: so there's still a chance for Powers Oh,
3: absolutely Oh, that's questions. great
0: It's such a great script uh, and question. I go find it I bet you can find it It's off some bootleg site
3: um no unfortunately the announcement of thief of thieves um this last week uh was interpreted by a lot of people that that somehow put powers in limbo and that's not the case at all we're <laughs> oh, actively moving forward with it we're about to uh, we're Writing new scripts. The network has ordered three scripts. Oh, fantastic! Which are in the middle of being broken right now. Where there's a writer's room up and running over in Culver City, um, doing that. And with any luck at all, we will reshoot the pilot. Um, having done it once last year, <laughs> uh, and uh, that's that's the Powers track. And then over here for, for AMC, we're doing uh, Thief of Thieves. And I just was meeting with Robert on Friday about that. That's great.
0: Uh, good. I'm glad to know those are both uh, alive. Tell us a little bit, though, about. I was bowling with Robert on Friday. Did, were you a part of that bowling? Uh... Yes, I was. <laughs>
2: were you <laughs> a nerdist? Just, just too odd a thing to not mention. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to step into your interview, but.
0: That might have been after I bowled with him.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of glamorous.
0: Kind of glamorous life we lead here. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, But tell us about uh, adapting each of these series. I'm sure there were different approaches, but how do you go about something like that? And how did you get involved in the first place uh, in Powers and then in Thief of Thieves?
3: Well, uh, the development of Thief of Thieves is still sort of an open question, um, just because we haven't really begun that process yet. Although I will say that Thief of Thieves was conceived really with an eye toward developing it as a TV show. Um, Robert had already been in the room uh, working on Walking Dead and understood, you know, was learning what the differences are between uh, graphic novels and that genre and the demands of uh, uh, making a television show and how the narrative styles are very different. <clears throat> so to that end, I think he's recalibrated um, his thinking about, about this next uh, graphic novel that he's writing. Um, it, it's a little bit more, well, first of all, it's very real world. Uh, there's no fantastic elements to it. There's no zombie apocalypse. There's, you know.
0: Nobody, Not yet. No, See how many
3: seasons yeah. you get. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nobody with flames shooting out of their ass and <laughs> stuff like that. Um, and Powers was, it was one of those things that after Walking Dead, um, I was looking around, it was really kind of happenstance. I was looking around for my next project and Powers had been I don't know how much you know about the long and storied past of this project. I mean, it's been around for like twelve years. It was developed, it was bought originally by Sony and developed for several years as a movie over there. Frank Oz was attached and and they did a whole bunch of scripts on that as a feature and that never materialized. So then they took another run at it, uh, thinking that maybe it was more suited to television, and it had been—it's been in development for about five years uh, in TV, um, with various writers doing various sort of takes uh, on that. So basically, in other words, there is no back end whatsoever on this show because they've spent so much money developing it. <laughs> that n- nobody's ever going to see a profit off of it. But I got involved, and um, you know, you know, my background really is more kind of cop stuff, cop and law, and, and, and um, my approach to the show was a little bit more superhero adjacent as opposed to it being a superhero show, because I, I don't really know much about that world, and, and I'm not particularly adept in in telling those stories. So I was approaching it as if it was a straight cop show. It just so happens that the world is populated by these these entities that, you know, have various powers and abilities and and are able to, you know, create you know mayhem and in, in in the city and stuff that our guys have to deal with in in a legitimate cop procedural way. And
0: is that how it came to you? Is you know the next take on this script, which I imagine you know there had been versions before, where where it was a uh... You know we need someone who can do the cop
3: angle, or yeah that, I did mean you have I, to pitch on it I did, yeah, okay. um, they had a script that uh, was okay, they were sort of happy with it, and I, I had a long history with that network with FX because I'd been on the shield for a number of years, um, so I knew those guys pretty well, and I came in and just you know vectored away from. The superhero stuff and glommed on to. Uh, it, for those of you who know the comic at all, there's an installment called "Who Killed Retro Girl?" And I just seemed to me that rather than wrap that up in a one-hour pilot, the thing to do was really cr- let that be a, a whole season—the 13 episodes—and treat it as you know one murder investigation with you know little uh, uh, weekly stories. Contained, uh, uh, self-contained uh, narratives. You know, each episode. But but, you know, the big event, sort of like Murder One, really was solving that crime and using that to um, develop our characters and, and uh, um, dramatize the world.
2: That's, That's right. Can I ask a question? yes Do you find that that also comes with an inherent risk? Um, that if you hinge a lot on the solving of one particular crime, that then you're almost starting your series over again. I, and I know this from my, my favorite show, one of my favorite shows, um, in Twin Peaks, the whole point of sure. Twin Peaks was they never were, they never planned on solving the murder. Right. And that was supposed to just take them through the series. But the public outcry became so big that they capitulated and then once they solved the crime they were at sea and Right. and they just got lost
0: and I think we saw that in the killing this past year, is, Right, you know, people were pissed that they didn't Get what they thought was promised to them.
2: Right. I haven't. I haven't followed it because it, um, mm-hmm. because it just seemed like it was a show about rain. <laughs> but um, in such a beautiful but, way. <laughs> but uh, but uh, yeah. Now, did they? Did they not? Because sol- they're still solving it. Is right. that? Yeah. It's in season two, um, in solving. B- so before, yeah.
3: before I answer that, I have to ask the question. In your time at the Simpsons, were you ever affiliated with a rubber band ball?
2: I am familiar with the rubber band ball.
3: Did we? Did. Were you? Was it there when you were there? Yes, it was there when I was there. there there's a small
2: it? one. There's a larger one. I don't know. There's a small yeah, one. I, yeah, because I... Did you start that rubber band? No, no, no. I, <laughs> the
3: Simpsons started... He's worked
2: on everything. You know, <laughs> the
3: Simpsons started when I when I was on the lot. I forget what show. And it was a little rubber band. Oh, yeah. Ball. no. It's, then, now it's
2: like a grapefruit.
3: <laughs> and and George Miller was uh, involved with the rubber band ball. Yes. And it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then I <laughs> walked into their trailer one day and there was a picture of George Harrison holding
2: uh,
3: (laughs) and I was just so impressed that
2: rubber band ball has has since gone on to uh, its reward but there's (laughs) another one that's now I'll use the word grapefruitian (laughs) (laughs) but yeah George Harrison is that makes sense
3: Um, not now (laughs) because he's gone well I'm not so worried uh, uh, about it because we're not really hinging the show on the solving of that particular crime. It's really about uh, Christian Walker's uh, journey. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, is, this guy is sort of, uh, uh, again, for those of you who know the premise of the piece, he's sort of the man who fell to earth. He was this Olympian god who you know, had powers and uh, was immortal, and he sort of got thrown out, and now here he is walking the earth among mere mortals and trying to put it together. Um, so it's really about him figuring out how to be a human being, and this case is just a way to, it happens to be, you know, the death of a woman who, who he'd been in love with, uh, um, um, we're changing the time frame, I think, in the comic, he's been in love with her for 30,000 years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've changed it. Chicks really string you along. <laughs> we've changed it, I think they met on Friday night. <laughs> uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, so it's, it's really that journey, it's, it's not, um, we're not playing the Who Done It. We're playing the Who is this guy?
0: But there has to be some concern, I would imagine. You know, if not on your part, at least on the network's part, having seen the backlash against the killing uh, about you know the fan perception, and maybe it's you know it's probably too early for you guys to
3: tell. Again, uh, you know, I'm I'm not so concerned about it because. This is more akin to the the shield, which is: Are they ever going to get Vic Mackey for shooting Terry Crowley in the head in the pilot? Yeah. And that can go and for seven can, seasons. It, it, it did.
2: Yeah, the killing because specifically, I, and you know, I'm I'm countering my own argument. The killing was not about the main characters. Right. It was about this killing.
0: Yeah, I guess that's and then, right.
2: You know, I'm I'm am spitballing, but mm-hmm. it's you know, it seems to be about like we will take you through a crime and then. I, yeah. I was at the. It was. I'm continually impressed with how Battlestar Galactica solved it. Mm-hmm. Like they went to Earth and then they went to another one. You know, but <laughs> but that was to- oh, wholly satisfying mm-hmm. the way they handled that. I was I was so. Yeah, I think so. Uh,
0: yeah. And this is something, Andrew, that we were talking a little bit about uh, earlier. This idea of spinning out your story or running out of story for that matter, and not having you know at least in in. A procedural powers, you know, will have this procedural element to it, you can latch on to, there's a crime that we need to solve, and you can move that big story forward, uh, and kind of revel in the small character bits. Secret Circle uh, does not have a crime at the center. No.
1: Uh,
0: how do you guys... How did hot you guys, witches. Yeah, <laughs> hot witches. Um, how well, did you guys approach storytelling from the beginning? How has it changed over the course of this first season? Not easily. But uh, we
4: we started with you know a, a mythology that we thought we could stretch out and and learn quickly that we couldn't was this it's based on a book series right it's based on a book series but the books they're sort of two and a half books and they it's a closed story and mm-hmm. and we really had to open it up anyway so we were really only able to use a chunk of the, the oh. setup of that and then. And then, you know, the demands for 22 episodes, and then, and then with CW, it's a seven-act structure, and it just felt that story takes over like a monster. Uh, and then we just were burning through, you know... At a certain point, we had very neatly mapped out, you know, eight, eight episodes or ten episodes, and we were robbing from ten for two. Wow. Um, what do you mean by seven-act structure? Well, because of the they have a very specific...
0: <laughs> I already knew. <laughs> I don't. I, I don't work for the CW,
4: Dana. <laughs>
1: there's
4: there's sort of five real acts, and then there's a teaser, and then a, a, essentially a seventh act. Okay. Um, it's the emotional uh,
0: wrap-up, we always said. It's the but, melodrama at the, in the last three minutes.
4: Yeah, but for, <laughs> but for these shows, what they what they expect is some sort of twist at the end of that
2: right. wrap-up to take you...
4: Here, so not later. not to drag
2: everybody into the weeds, but... Do you find that a seven-act structure is still a three-act structure? It's a seven-act structure to accommodate commercials. Mm -hmm. But it's still basically you're writing a three-act story. The acts themselves are sort of
0: false, to call it that. You're still working working on a beginning, middle, and end kind of.
2: That's my question,
4: and I'll take it off the air.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, caller. Um,
4: uh, yeah, it, I think that's absolutely true. The, the struggle is just coming up with the cliffhangers. No, because the, yeah, The Simpsons recently went
2: from three to four to accommodate co- mm-hmm. commercials, and yeah, it's it's a it's a, a hurdle you don't need to jump.
4: No, and we we feel it's it. I'm I'm part of the problem, but our our musical stings in the act now sort of drive the story that we're sort right. of dependent oh, on. on, Like that whether you like it or not there's going to be some kaboom
0: at the end right. of it. So there better be something in
4: the storytelling that's justifying
0: that. So, but I thought it was interesting what you were saying about like whether it's the network or wherever it comes from that they want a real life or death cliffhanger at the end of or, or preceding each commercial break.
4: Yeah, the, we we try to squeeze by on some more soapy and emotional act outs, yeah. and it never quite works out as much as. I mean, they they really want six twists. Yeah, but you can and we've had, you know we
2: can't threaten to kill six people an hour and not <laughs> kill them consistently enough
0: to get people are twenty two times. Yeah, a year, they're going to yeah. stop
2: tuning in.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, So so what have you found does work? Has has it become easier over the course of the season?
4: no 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 not no not easier but we you know again it's the same idea which is that we we tried to have a a season long arcing story and then you know visit little pieces of that along the way uh, and I, I still believe in that as an ideal like it's it's what i like as a viewer i like the you know whether it's battlestar i think a great example even game of thrones now um but it's. I think that my struggle is the 22 episodes of that. It just seems yeah, just yeah. a lot longer than 13. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a <laughs> by like seven or eight. I think. It's a big. It's a big
2: order. It's a big order. I
3: know. I, I also think that you know, as envisioned, you know, the bloodlines from powers really can also uh, be traced to you know the structure of Dexter. Um, well, you know implicit in that is are they going to catch Dexter and are they going to figure out that he's a serial killer well if they do you don't have a show mm-hmm. um, but each season has a big bad uh, uh, whether it's Jimmy Smith's in season 3 or John Lithgow in season 4 um, and yet each episode has a ideally satisfying self contained narrative that with a beginning middle and end so that each episode has closure so that you're not just you know telling attenuated story and um, and at the end of that season, you know, you wrap up Jimmy Smith or you wrap right. up uh, 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 John Lithgow. I, I would think that we would be doing something similar. Um, it gets – I wouldn't want to have to do that for 22 episodes. I mean, I did it once or actually twice with Murder One. Yeah. Um, that first season was uh, 23 episodes. God. And
0: Are you guys familiar with Murder One? You're all very young. So yeah, it's probably. Uh, it's a your great time. show, and it's on DVD, right? It if is. Yeah, it. It's, it's so It premiered terrific. on the it's Dumont on. network.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, but, but that was the
4: first. I mean, at least to my memory, that was by far the first it, season-long arc
3: type. It, it, it show. Re- well, uh, real quickly, Murder One was uh, a show that was inspired. It's a show that I did with um, um, Stephen Botchko and David Milch. And to some extent, it was inspired by the O.J. trial. I mean, we'd been doing Civil Wars and uh, L.A. Law and, and, and these law shows. And the idea of doing one long trial and get into all the specificity uh, of, you know, what really goes on in a trial. Um, we did two episodes on Voidir. Um <laughs> you know, which, which was pretty crazy. Um, and, you know, the thing was, uh, it really had a following. The network was really worried about it because they didn't know how to program it. N- there would never been anything like that on American television. Um, certainly in England, you know, they'd done that sort of storytelling. But at that time, an American television, it was like a regular viewer was somebody who maybe caught five episodes of a show. Um, they just, you know, one-hour dramas didn't have that sort of appointment, tv that you have now largely because of the cable stuff um, so the second year uh well first of all what our ratings began to tail off and abc was very worried that we weren't going to be able to hold our own during may sweeps so they pulled all the episodes out of may sweeps the best thing you can do to a serialized show yeah and and Botchka went crazy it's like wait a minute i mean 23 episodes and we're not going to find out who killed the guy you know uh, um, So they said, okay, okay. So they ran them. They clumped them all together and ran them the last week of April. And what happened was the ratings, like on Monday night, it was, you know, still an astronomical number now, but like (laughs) a 15. And then it went to an 18. And by by Wednesday night, it was like a 22 share. And they went, oh, oh, okay. So maybe if we run these things together... you know there there is some promise there. So the second season, what we did is instead of pulling the train of twenty two episodes, we divided the season up into three parts. So there was like uh, three seven episode arcs with sort of in different crime cultures, mm-hmm. um, and that worked out better. But um, um, that's really interesting, and it's not something you often get to do. I
0: mean, especially in network TV, in setting up you know this sort of macro structure to your show. I mean, in looking at, I mean, uh, Secret Circle, where do you guys have the big picture in your head as you're you're moving forward or is it just, you know, playing catch up the whole time?
4: Well, we have a I mean, we have a big bad and we have an emotional arc that starts at the beginning and ends at the life or death of that big bad. So it, it it's it's not unlike what you're describing and then and then for us there's just on a week-to-week level, there's just a lot of supernatural bad guys that, that come into play. But I think the difference is that the network, unlike uh, in the Dexter model, with us, they they make more demands on that that much of the story is on that on the larger train. Right. Like in like, I think if Dexter were on CW, they would be saying he needs to be trying to hide his identity more. A, a greater
0: percentage yeah. of the show needs to be devoted to Could that. Could
4: he kill someone every act? <laughs> 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 but while you drinking a snapple. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, the knife is hovering at the end
1: of the act, and <laughs> then yeah, when yeah. you come back. No.
4: Oh, <laughs> but uh, but Murder One, I, I I use Murder One like as a as a huge mistake for a long time. I kept citing Murder One as an example of because I thought it was so I thought it was so well done and so interesting Thanks. all the way. But but um, all the way through the season, but. Uh, I remember I, had, I was adapting the movie Go for Showtime and I said I said oh, I want to do it like Murder One and instead of it just being you know three stories over 90 minutes it'll be, it'll be a number of stories over the whole like the one day will be a whole season and then we'll just instead of three and they were like we're not doing serialized show. like at that point there was just right. it was I mean I think it's come around but there was a time there where they're like absolutely not
3: well, it was you know fairly unpopular at the time and uh, uh, at ABC, and really the only reason that we were allowed to do what we did was because of the incredible juice that Stephen had at the mm-hmm. network at the time. Um, um, I think absent that, I mean, if it was just me coming in off the street, that show would have been canceled after five episodes or something. Mm-hmm.
2: And they still don't, you know, that what's amazing is they're still as... With different delivery systems for shows and a, and, t, and a digital downloading, they're still they still don't know how to run shows, you know. And I know at um, I know at HBO they had a big experiment within treatment in the second season of how to divide that up. What, and did, how, what did they do? They broke it up instead of having it one night every week. I think they had it two two to three nights, and they would rotate the patient because it was really. If if I recall, it was five nights a week, mm-hmm. a different patient each night. Uh, based on the show, it was a it was a show originally in Israel, um, and who knew Jews went to the psychiatrist. <laughs> um, and uh, I it's it, but what what's amazing is um, uh, they still don't they still there's no hard formula as to how to do it. Yeah, you know after all this time, it's like yeah. I don't know. Let's try this yeah i mean Super I think,
0: I think it's interesting to see also you know with Netflix starting to put out series and they said they 're going to put all the arrested development right. the new episodes out at once, so you 'll be able to consume them as a lot of people do now, right yeah, these all in and mass um, but you've worked on uh, dana you 've worked on some sitcoms that have these sort of serial elements i'm curious about me.
1: <laughs> well, um
2: I about work... how
0: they balance that in the room
2: well, I know on this and i the I worked. I came in on the first full season of Parks and Rec, mm-hmm. and that was when the show was still deciding. It, the show was still really finding itself, and what was really brilliant, I thought. And Mike Shore can tell you this much better than I do, because nine times out of ten, I was in the kitchen eating Butterfingers.
0: <laughs> um, so many good snacks. But the, yeah, <laughs> so it, get on a TV show, you it, guys.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's a great way to gain a lot of weight. Uh, imagine your house the day after Halloween, but it's every day. Um, but they really did let the show figure itself out, you know, and there was a very healthy way of creating the show and, and because the show really did turn itself inside out mm-hmm. in, over the course of that season. And there was, and, it, and it did become, a, it had season-long arcs and then individual stories as well. I, frankly, in the show that I'm writing, the pilot that I'm writing right now, have the same design mm-hmm.
0: Well, it's really—it's it. an appealing design. It's isn't
2: an appealing it? design. It hooks in your viewers, and it's—and it just takes the gun away from your head, you know. Um, comparing it to The Simpsons, where every—you know—every episode is a diamond, right. you know, but it has to be a diamond. <laughs> um, and uh, you can mix them up and put them in different order, and it doesn't really matter. But there's a beautiful sense of narrative over a longer canvas, and I think the thing that you've also seen. In the past, I'll say 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, the most intriguing drama is not in the movies, it's on television.
1: Totally.
2: I would argue the same for comedy, actually. Uh, the, it used to be that the movies were the marquee job and television was the ghetto. That's actually flipped, I think. I mm-hmm. think the best drama and the best comedy are both on television. Yeah. Um, outside of American Pie or any pastry fucking themed <laughs> film. <laughs> Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, it's 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 an easier way to hang yeah. your stories, Absolutely. and I think it's just a more human. It appeals to people more, more. Uh, uh,
0: just people, Wait. it gives you a reason to come back. Yeah, and we want to live with these characters, right? I mean, this is the thing. Even before you know, it's rampant now, but like on NYPD Blue, Sipowitz's story was moved so incrementally, but it was. Fascinating, and I mean, granted, he was an amazing character, but we wanted to live with that guy every week um, before we get off on that. Right. Uh, when you were last here, Dana, we did not get to ask you about writing that funny people can do that is not <laughs> on a sitcom. Uh, but right. you've done some like award show writing and stuff like that, and I yeah, really you... wanted to talk about
1: that. Oh, Lord. Um,
0: I'm <laughs> How like did a... you even get into it?
2: I'm like a comedy handyman. <laughs> people just call me up for the craziest right. reasons i get like i have a real career i like to think um and then i just i get like uh, hey do you want to come and work on this for like uh, how long it's two days okay you know i was like hey or like one of i'm i've done you know i've helped people
0: Sorry I asked. <laughs> all right it's you know. It is, I mean, like Akron and I have been. Uh,
2: we've yeah. done some of this. But, stuff. but, but you know, there are court, jobs court. like here are some jobs. You, here are some jobs you didn't know were jobs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> helping famous people write valedictory valed, however you pronounce that word, <laughs> speeches for colleges. Yeah. Helping I mean, famous yeah. people uh, come up with st- refining their stories for panels for talk shows. Okay. Um, punching up. Uh, you know, pilots. and The biggest work that you do that's just the most ad hoc work is every major motion picture comedy has a table before they start to shoot. Would you like to come in and do a table for two days? And (laughs) there are maybe six major comedies in the past ten years that I haven't had my grubby, greasy hands on at (laughs) one point.
0: Um, You know, at that point, are these the ones where it's... uh, it's you get the script before they shoot, or are you doing the jokes? Oh, you yeah, know this is before they shoot. This is, no, I've
2: done those too. Like yeah.
0: that's yeah, that's, so that's when you get sad. a lot of
2: like um, yeah, trying to cram jokes in like when people are off camera. Yeah. Well, you know the mob hit the drugs in the trunk of the car. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: what can they yell from off screen? Yeah,
2: exactly. What's a, three funny ways to say hello off camera? Um, and that's usually when a movie's. Uh, I'll tell. Well, I'll tell you a quick story. But um, uh, there's. Um, You know, people that are funny, um, there's a big need for you, but it's it's always at the last minute You know, like, what normally happens in the course of a movie is somebody writes a really funny script and then they develop the movie which means that the actors come in and every actor wants their part beefed up a little bit and everybody has 9 or 10 small changes which as a result of pleasing everybody only results in about 90 or 100 small changes and then by the time they're ready to shoot they realize they've taken every joke out of the script to accommodate everybody and then the front office starts to shit themselves blind and they bring in people like me that get to hold them up for giant checks for three days and we go in and we put jokes back in the script the way you would decorate a christmas tree Um, (laughs) and um sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but that's unfortunately the process it's um it's whore work i call it it's just you know But listen it's it's not not a bad yeah i'm meeting i'm meeting a tile salesman at a hotel um can it is a paycheck. Out with other funny people? Oh, you yeah, hang out with funny people. You have fun. They buy a lunch. It's great. It's but uh, w- the point is that there's always, you know, the, in comedy specifically, um, in the development of comedy, comedy is rarely the priority, mm-hmm. and that's unfortunate. Um, and here's a great example. Um, I wrote a, I did a pass on a movie. Um, I don't want to. Uh,
4: American Pie. Uh, no, uh,
2: I don't want to say the title. It rhymes with John Tucker Must Bly. Um And I wrote. Uh, and if you have cable, yeah. If you've been on a flight, um, and here was a joke that I wrote. That you know, that was the prime example of as the movie progressed, they took every single joke out of the movie, and because everybody wanted to be. You know, and then the whole premise of the movie was first wives' club in a high school, which was a beautifully smart idea. And then at the last minute, somebody decided, yeah, but the guy should be likable. Okay, so now it's about nothing. <laughs> now it's about four pretty girls playing practical jokes on a pretty guy you like. <laughs> um, it became, and, and then it was just a vamp, which is why it, and so. I wrote, and, they, and So I had to put a joke in the movie I'll try to find a way to make this story take longer um, Here's the joke A bunch of girls are sitting around eating And the girl says Because there are no characters anymore Because that had all been stripped out of the movie um, It was just jokes about things And the joke was like They're eating candy And the girl goes look at this Chocolate covered raisins Chocolate covered peanuts Chocolate covered licorice Chocolate is the John Tucker of candies When a new candy comes along He's got to get all over it <laughs> completely professional joke
0: that is technically a joke
2: right, exactly I'm watching the dailies girls, here's the, here comes the line let's see how my joke plays mm, chocolate covered candy chocolate covered raisins mm, chocolate is your friend <laughs> uh, what happened to the joke? Uh, Betty, the director Betty Thomas. Uh, Betty thought it'd be better if she let the girls put the jokes into their own words. Great. Right. Sort of, sort of mouth raping the concept of what a joke is. Um, specific choices of words being one of the key ingredients of a joke. <laughs>
0: intent being another
2: yeah yeah why is the why is the leg coming out of the neck oh we thought the baby would be good if we just sort of put the limbs on as they came out um so but it's just one of those things that, and there's no one there's no adult to go but that's not a joke that's not a joke um and as true to form at the end of that movie uh because it was about nothing they ran out of they literally ran out of story and it ended in a food fight
1: Show (laughs) her. What else are you going to
2: (laughs) do? Because at the end of the movie, the girl realized that she really liked that nice guy that she liked. (laughs) Jesus. It was amazing. Um, How did you become... Monty
0: Python and the Holy Grail ended much more subtly and
1: satisfactorily.
0: (laughs) Uh, But how did you become a guy who is approached for this? I don't know. Was it by dint of being a a comic? Yeah, I think it's because I'm
2: known as a comedian... Mm -hmm. Uh, and people know me, and, um, and, and uh, there's, a, there's a skill just being good in a room. Can you just craft a joke and Absolutely. throw it out there? You know, at, at The Simpsons, I started at The Simpsons a day a week as, you know, you want to help just harden up the jokes. And uh, as a joke guy, a gag guy, a gag guy. And um, then literally at the end of my first contract, um, Mike Scully, who was running the show at the time, said... Uh, Oh, you know, your contract is up. And I literally like started to gather up my stuff. Like, oop, I didn't need to be here today. Um, and he said... Uh, like your confidence. Yeah, I know. I, I could be home watching porn on the internet. I don't need to be here. Um, and uh, and he just said, uh, You want to come every day? And I said, Sure,
0: Mr. Scully.
2: And that's how I got my... That's how Sorry. I became a real writer.
0: Um, this idea, though, of... You know, being good in a comedy room is one thing. Um, I'm curious about some of the rooms you've been in, uh, Chick. We'll we'll get to the Corman stuff, which I want to talk about. But uh, talk about some of the rooms you've been in. I mean, you've been in the rooms of some kind of huge shows, NYPD Blue and L.A. Law, uh, as well as, you know, shows you created like Dark Angel. What is it to be good in a, a drama room?
3: Well every room you know has its own chemistry I've actually have been uh, moonlighting was a was a room that was actually split between comedy writers and drama writers which was hilarious because <laughs> I mean I have so much respect for what you guys do I, it's just like a whole other craft and it's a whole other energy level and and it, it's it's really cool and it's it's really it was wonderful training because um, you know you figure out how to craft jokes and 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 how things work and it, it also has to do with just crafting lines of information you know uh, um, one of the, one of the things one of the things that i learned actually from the comedy guys was exposition is always the enemy of any tv show but inevitably you have to have it so it's much better if you can bury it in attitude or comedy uh, if somebody is like furious at somebody and they're fuck you, uh, you know, blah, 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 blah. And meanwhile, you get all that exposition out that you that the audience needs to understand so that you can move to the next scene. Or, alternatively, you can do it with humor. And it just, it's a spoonful of sugar helping the medicine go down.
2: Otherwise, you get lines like, how long have we been brothers?
3: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs>
3: um, you know, everybody brings a different skill set to the room. And, and the people who are best at running a room, and I think really that's the key, uh, is the temperament of the, the guy or girl who's running the room, because um, the people who are best at it, Botchko, Sean Ryan, um, really understand that everybody contributes something very different. And, I mean, it's a little bit like, uh, uh, you know, it's an analogy that gets... Uh, uh, Overused, but it's it's a bit like a you know a jazz uh, uh, ensemble or something. I mean that person does something really well, and this person really thinks about things in a completely different way, and this per- person's really funny, and uh, um, you know if you've got Kurt Sutter in your room, you're wondering why he's not a war criminal, uh, uh, but he brings his his uh, uh, skill set to things and somebody that understands how to craft that and how to let it all be. Um, And and I think the biggest skill that any writer can have in a room is to understand which way the story is breaking and to either go with it or get out of the way of it, but never to impede it. Um, You know, if you don't like the idea, if you don't like which way the the idea is breaking, we'll come up with a better one. I mean, because it really is a meritocracy and it's got nothing to do with who's the executive producer and who's the co-executive producer and, Who's the supervising producer? In a writer's room, everybody's a story editor. Everybody is just a writer. And some of the worst writers' rooms that I've ever been in have um, been those where there's somebody there that has some sense of you know hierarchy, you know that, oh well, I guess we get to go with your idea because you're this or that or the other thing. and it's just absolutely the wrong way to think about writing and I just detest being in rooms with, you know, folks like that. Um, it's uh, it, it's always just a mix of personalities, and and um, it works best if people just show up to play and, and keep their egos in check or leave them outside the door and, and approach what they're doing with a good deal of humility because we're so fucking lucky that we get to do this for a living. It's really remarkable.
2: And And what you said, I strongly second that about when you put together a writing staff is that like putting together any team you do need people with different strengths and, and I happen to know that's how I ended up you know people's like how'd you end up at the Simpsons you didn't go to Harvard it's like yes because at a certain point somebody said we need people that can do something else you know it's uh, and that's uh, it's, it's, and, and the ego the, the, and the showrunner as well um, a good showrunner is, is not afraid to let their staff make them look like a genius.
0: Okay.
2: With a you know a lot of times you don't have to push that hard. You kind of let a, let the an old let the horses run a little bit. They can, mm-hmm. It's amazing what can happen.
0: I was actually going to open this question to you, Andrew. Uh, as far as putting together a staff, as a genius showrunner, as a genius showrunner, <laughs> yes. Um, but as far as putting yes. together a staff, you know, when you sat down at this time of year, I would imagine uh, last year, looking to put together the staff for uh, Secret Circle. What were you looking for? What kind of writers, what kind of personalities? You know, you must have met with dozens and dozens of writers at all levels. It was a little bit like like putting together
4: a fantasy baseball team to me. But I I, I, I like nice people to begin with because it just felt like we were going to spend a lot of time together. So we had a lot of nice people. In our case, there were a lot of reasonably funny people just because it seemed like at 3 in the morning you need someone to crack a joke now and again um and then and then in our show there's a there's a blend you know there's mythology and genre and romance and teen soap and we tried to get people from all those
0: walks of life just to who had had experiences on those kinds of shows as well as people who had had those experiences
4: yeah yes and then because we were picked up late and and you know we didn't we were a a new show and couldn't Choose anyone we wanted, really. So we, there are people who, you know, people who like genre can, and maybe never had a chance, but that were excited by it. And did I, you have this conversation a lot? It's about witches. No
2: witches.
1: <laughs>
4: <laughs> we still do. Okay. <laughs> um, a, and yeah, and, and there's witches. You had to, you know, you had to in, in the genre world. You had to, you had to be able to roll with witches as opposed to. <laughs> they have sort yeah. of a
0: stigma on them, don't they? <laughs> Yeah, vampires it's, it's, are cool but witches I was pushing for mummies but the network didn't go for it <laughs> every, you mu- also, every mummy pitch we did at Supernatural <laughs> got shot down I'm not even kidding they're all, they're all sponsored by gauze companies
2: um, but, but you have to when you do a genre show you have to really have your rules in, in order and, and witches unlike vampires don't have those hard and fast rules like vampires they play with them every year but, uh, you know, there's always... Yeah.
0: Like, there's, there's a lore, there's an, exi- there's an existing yeah. lore. And they which change we know, the rules. Yeah. Well, as
2: you know, I can be in the sunlight on a Tuesday. What? <laughs> but, but but which is, it's a lot more um, uh, loose. Did you have a, a Bible or did you have to sit down like, okay, they can do this and they can do that? Um, you know, how, how extensive was that before you got going?
4: We, ha- we had books to guide us, but mm-hmm. then... Uh, we, very early on, we decided to limit their powers as much as humanly possible. That's as is good as as um, yeah. because it just it was just uh, it just couldn't be done otherwise. From a production right. point of view, from a, even creatively, it just seemed like if you could, it's like walking around with a million superheroes, but you then there's nothing to stop anyone. So.
2: Yeah, and that's just a, you know, that's why I never gave. Can you swear on this show? I prefer it. On a podcast? Um, (laughs) On a podcast. Can you swear on a podcast? (laughs) Yes, Grandpa, you can. I I don't want this to be played back on the cinematograph. (laughs) I never give a fuck about Superman, Mm -hmm. ever. Because if you can fly around the earth and make it go back three days, well, fuck you. Then, then who cares? Why, why bother fighting anything just to fly around the world again? That's, all and that's
0: it? the toughest thing about writing yeah. Superman,
2: and that, yeah, and that is No the, one's quite cracked it. Exactly. And, and that's, that's a really, and especially in genre where you're dealing with people with, you know, that is a great thing about vampires is they have so many clearly defined sources of kryptonite mm-hmm. to mix metaphors. <laughs> um, uh, and, and with witches, you really have to do, the, the more you limit them, the more human they are and the more... More people are involved involved in it. That's why, like even like Neil Gaiman stuff, it's 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 so smart. um, Not, but you know, to take like former gods, people that knew that power, and put new restrictions on it. It's such a compelling story. It's what
3: we've been spending actually the last few weeks doing as we're you know gearing up to reshoot the pilot, hopefully, and and do these new episodes. I I spent a week with Bendis up in uh, Portland. You know, really trying to nail down a very simple mythology that's easily articulated to, um, and we were talking about this a little bit earlier, One, one of the reasons why we're redoing the pilot, the fan base seemed to grasp the show. It tested very well. People that were, you know, used to genre storytelling. The broader audience read older audience... You know, it was like, holy shit! Who told? When did this happen? People could fly around and do all this shit, and 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 they they really lacked context, and so they just you know, it's kind of what you were saying about Superman. It's like that you know why you know why give a shit if this guy can just do anything? So what we've done is to sit down and really come up with. Um, we spent a lot of time just. Nailing down the mythology, especially if you're doing a cop show in a post CSI uh, uh, era, you know, it, it's it's really got to be bulletproof because it's a very smart audience that's out there, and and you can't just be pulling stuff out of your ass week to week. So we've actually tried to come up with that's um, different, by the way, from Bendis's world. There's a lot of slipping and sliding, and and I, I, I say this. Uh, uh, you know, in and with all envy that Brian is able to do that in the graphic novel, but different powers and able to change, you know, uh dimensions and time, and and a TV audience really doesn't get invested in somebody that's been around for thirty thousand years, and if they get killed, they're going to reincarnate. You know, it, it, it's just it's too hard to explain and. Especially for me, coming out of um, um, you know more linear procedural kind of stuff, I'm less interested in writing that. So what we've tried to do is really establish some the laws of physics for our show, and and actually put underneath it kind of a metaphysical underpinning to it um, that could have some semblance in reality if if one were of a metaphysical stripe so that it's not just pure science fiction and somebody's from, you know, uh, uh, Alpha Centauri and everybody on Alpha Centauri has these powers and, you know. um, So it's significantly different than the comic book, but it serves our world really well. Go
1: ahead.
2: I was just uh, thinking about that, uh, I know on Star Trek, Spock's powers were born out of necessity. Like, the Vulcan mind meld wasn't something that they knew about Vulcans beforehand. It was like, how can Spock find this out? What if? <laughs> you know, so a lot of that stuff just... And the, and the famous story about the neck pinch was invented by Leonard Nimoy. It was uh, one of the early episodes. He was supposed to hit Kirk over the head with the butt of his gun. Evil Kirk. You know, not Kirk. Evil Kirk. Um, and, uh, and he just thought that that was unelegant. And so he literally just put his hand on Shatner And, and Shatner got it and, and that's how that came about It just seemed a little more smooth
0: uh, Was there Did you feel like there was uh, freedom Coming off of Walking Dead Which you know has this strong source material um, But veers Pretty far from it pretty quickly uh, Did you guys feel that Freedom in Powers uh, or, oh. or had you felt it before <laughs>
3: Well, I mean, you know, what you don't want to do is is just simply dramatize a graphic novel that's out there that everybody already knows the outcome yeah. of. I mean, you know. But I
0: think there are a lot of fans who wish that is what people did. You know, I mean, I feel like The Hunger Games is is sort of a testament to that, where but, it is just a dramatization of that. Well, book. I
3: mean, with Kirkman, what they've done on that show, what we sought to do uh, in my time on the show was, uh, you know, to. Borrow some of the tropes of the genre and some of the big set pieces, you know, the governor and Michonne and, and uh, uh, the prison and the farm, Herschel's farm and stuff like that as places to kind of tack to in storytelling. Um, and certainly the, the, the big three-way with, um, you know, Shane, Shane and... and uh,
2: Herschel, by the way, deceptively good bowler. Oh, really? <laughs> no lie. I'm not
3: lying. Uh, uh, but, uh, yeah. you know, with Powers, again, we, we have this universe of material to pick from. We've got 13 years of stuff. And so it's there's no excuse that you can't sit there at season three, uh, uh, episode two, going, well, I, I guess we're done with the show. We're out of ideas, it's, you know, because it's, it's all there.
2: It's difficult when you do that because I, I found an example. I thought The Watchman was a very faithful adaptation of the graphic novel and as such a somewhat lifeless movie uh, it, it, it's sort of like uh, there, there's such different uh, so, you know um, genre, whatever delivery systems right. of entertainment there's, a, there's one word for it <laughs> Oh, if only there was a writer here. Something. Um, media. Thank you. Medium. Thank you. Um, and then, and then on the other hand, I'll give you an example of it being pulled off wonderfully in a in a movie. I thought L.A. Confidential was a beautiful stripping away, boiling down, and reinvention of a beautiful novel. And they took the the essence of the novel, but then turned it into a movie. And it's you know, it's, it's, there's such different. Disciplines. Sin and, uh, City, to me, is the for me was
4: the worst example. Even just better, so yeah, because yeah, yeah. it was so like it seemed like the goal was to be exactly the graphic novel, right. and in so doing, it felt like a it's graphic, not a movie. Yeah, not right. a movie. it was. They just took out the point of making it into a movie. Yeah, the thing does have to live on its own. Yeah,
0: that's interesting.
2: And some things are, and I think it's fair to say. You know, some things are just better in their form. Like every time I hear that the newest attempt at turning geek love into a movie has fallen apart, mm. I'm happy because yeah. <laughs> that, that, I just don't think that that's a good. You know, it's 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 an it's a story about people's. It's just it's it's about how people's. Personalities, and mm. it, it, it's an inter- It's a very interior story, mm. and it's like some things. It's the
4: reason the Great Gatsby is never a good movie because it's an interior <laughs> yeah. story. Well, um, this is uh, he's not here, but a friend and they're of mine making is, it for the third time. Right. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> a friend of mine. This adapting, one will be great. Well, it'll be in 3D. <laughs> <laughs> a friend of mine's adapting Neuromancer right now, mm-hmm. and it, and it's that that's the same. It's impossible to do it. Directly, right? But he's but he he's got William Gibson who's pushing him to, to take it in completely other directions. Great, than that's good. Yeah, what the book was, but that's smart. Yeah, uh, it's, and again,
0: yeah, I think as as more and more TV is being adapted from other media, it's a good thing for us to look at as you know beginning yeah. writers. Even in our specs, you know, there's stuff that's out there that is in the public domain go write your version of Tale of Two Cities or something. You know, write that pilot and make it your own. And yeah, you know, It doesn't need to be a slavish recreation. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: no, and that's all, you know, it, it's, it's amazing the shows when you, when you boil them down. It's like, oh, that's just this. Mm-hmm. You didn't know that? That's yeah. just this.
0: Uh, incidentally, before I get to, uh, I think what will be my last question, then we'll open it to you guys. Um, is Game of Thrones like that? Is it a slavish recreation of the books? Do you guys know? <laughs> I haven't seen it. No, it's not. It's
1: not.
2: No, it, it's okay. it's it. it, it hews close to the book, but it drills down oh. a lot more. And, um, and different different characters. I know, like Half Man, because you know Peter Dinklage is such an amazing mm-hmm. uh, actor, and, and gives w- w- such a contemporary performance. Yeah. In a in a period piece, which is really difficult.
0: They tend to go there more.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: interesting. Uh, Let's talk. I know that by proxy. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take it. Uh, Uh, Let's talk briefly about breaking in. Uh, Looking at your resume, Uh, it looks like you always knew you wanted to be in this business.
3: No, really? No. Uh, I was in college, uh, just graduated, and was—I'd been working in the Senate um, in Washington, and was headed toward law school. And, uh, Everybody's it, story, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> it, it it just seemed it, that particular era, it, you know, it was after Vietnam and it was after Watergate, and it just seemed. And having worked down there, it just seemed like it, it made Jimi Hendrix made so much more sense to me <laughs> than the U.S. government. Um, so my girlfriend in college um, was from California, so I came out here and basically followed her out here. And just had every weird job in the world. I, you know, worked in a gas station. I worked uh, um, in all sorts of different restaurants. Uh, I actually had some cool jobs. The the one skill that I came out of Yale with was that I learned I knew how to run a lighting board. You know, this was all before computers and stuff, and and it was rheostats and presets and stuff because I'd been in theater there.
2: You attended the famous Yale School of Lighting. I did,
3: I did.
0: Jody Foster went. There.
3: <laughs> and that what that um, qualified me to do was to work in strip joints. <laughs> And one of the coolest jobs I worked in a jazz club uh, in South Central LA that was the very last gasp. I mean, and I mean, thirty years later, last gasp of the whole Central Avenue jazz scene uh, here in LA that started back in the forties. And I was the only white kid down there. And uh, the place was, sh- you know, shut down, raided one night because some pimp. And this was a high watermark of pimpdom. I mean, S- Snoop could only dream about being in that club uh, the guys with the big hats and the Cadillacs and the girls and stuff and we got shut down one night because there was a murder in the club and you know all of that Um, so my parents were just beside themselves I mean they just had spent all this money sending me to college and then to boarding school before that and my mother was convinced that I had moved out here to be closer to Charles Manson (laughs) Because the Manson family, actually, the apartment building I was living with in Venice, in, in Vincent Bugliosi's book, Helter Skelter, in the index, there was a section like this on about 1101 Oceanfront Walk. And, and when I was there, the, some of the Manson, Manson girls were still living there. Um, so I, did, I had no clue what I was going to do. And I was working in uh, this theater, um, I had all these different theater jobs. I worked for a transsexual review called French Dressing. Um,
2: (laughs) At least it wasn't called Rogue.
3: (laughs) And there was actually a girl who was a real girl who was a waitress there who was working for Roger Corman and said, we need somebody to be a PA on this Roger Corman movie. No, no, no. It was just they needed a PA. And I had a new car. I had a 1974 Ford Pinto. And I was hired because I had a nice car and I could pick up Cloris Leachman at her house and bring her to work because nobody else either had a car or they had a shitty car. So um, I was hired on this movie that I actually never got paid for. Uh, it, was a, it was a Roger Corman movie. It was called Bloody Mama. Um, With Shelley Winters? Uh, yeah. yeah.
2: I believe I have that poster.
3: And... Um, <laughs> Um, my job was to pick up Chloris Leachman at 5 o'clock in the morning in Mandeville Canyon. So I pull up, and I ring the doorbell, and Chloris Leachman opens the door. Well, She's probably 40 back then. Opens the door, dripping wet, stark fucking naked. <laughs> and I immediately, I am so fired, right? So she gets in my car, and... Um, um, she had—I just remember she had the strongest perfume on that stayed in the vinyl interior of my car for about six months. And she just started screaming at me, and she was going, "You pathetic little piece of shit!" And I, you know, I had no idea. And this was her warm-up stuff to go do a scene in a Roger Corman movie, but I didn't know. <laughs> And um, so I sort of insinuated myself into this orbit of of people, and you know there were a few of us knocking around back then. Jim Cameron was trying to be a I think he was an assistant art director. Um, Gail Hurd was a, a second AD. Um, Joe Dante was an editor. I mean there were you know just everybody was trying to get into the business, and so I ended up working on that, and then I. Became the first AD on Piranha and I was the worst AD in the world um, but that was pretty cool and the, was
0: it just by you know being in this group at this point yeah. and they were like you <laughs> yeah pretty much
3: yeah and I'd been an AD on a commercial okay. in New York or something but Bradford Bradford Dillman pulled me he was the star of the movie Roger Gorman movie he pulled me aside one day and he said check you know you seem like a bright guy, but you are just the worst assistant director I have ever worked with. You're just terrible. An A D has got to be like two thorns that protect the rose and you're you're just awful. But people tell me that, you know, you have aspirations to be a writer. I suggest you go and do that. So I did that I started doing that and I wrote a script for Roger that was terrible. It's called called Meltdown. Funnily enough, about um, a creature in a nuclear reactor, and I didn't never had written anything. I mean, the, I teach writing now back back at Yale, um, and one of the things that I always talk to people about is, I'd spend all this time over cultivating my critical, uh, faculties, but that's very different than being able to sit down and write. So I really just through trial and error, I had to learn how to write and, and endlessly having people throw scripts back at me and firing me and telling me I sucked. The cool thing was that I actually learned while getting paid. Um, I did, uh, uh Jim and I, I came up with the idea of Piranha 2, which was like okay, what if these carnivorous fish get into, like, the Mississippi, and then they get into the Caribbean, and they breed with flying fish, and then they attack a bunch of penthouse playmates on a bareboat charter who are all naked, and they're ripping through the sails, and they're biting them and stuff. And they just looked at me and went, sold. We're (laughs) fucking doing it. How quick can you have a script? So Jim and I did that movie. I I wrote a tarot. Fairly awful script. Jim rewrote it, and I remember reading it and going, Jesus, I don't really have to learn how to write. This is pretty good. And from there, I went to uh, the... Uh, my favorite credit, actually, uh, was Deadly Eyes. And that was about giant rats attacking teenagers, um, principally girls, high school girls who had had sex with their boyfriends because they needed to be punished by, <laughs> by flesh eating rodents. <laughs> And this is all before computers and stuff. So it's the
2: first Catholic rat movie ever. Yeah.
3: <laughs> the, it was Scatman Crothers' last movie, and he had just come from The Shining, and he showed up on our set. And, you know, I mean, we had like $1.20 to make a movie. And my job, having I was, I'd written the script, I was a producer on the movie, and principally my job was getting, scoring weed for uh, Scatman uh, to keep him happy. Um, you had good contacts downtown. Uh, no, this was in Toronto. Uh, but anyway, the, this was before computers, so the the rats were actually dachshunds in rat suits.
1: <laughs>
3: and um, the, you know, we had these rat suits made that we put. We had like twenty dachshunds up in in. Uh, uh, Toronto, and we would put them in these suits, and then between takes, we'd take their heads off, and they had little tiny heads, they sort of looked like football players, and, uh, and then we put the heads on, and then Scatman had like dog food in his pockets, and he'd go running through the sewer, and the dogs would chase him, and, and, and of course, we were doing this without on the track without sound, but on the set you could hear this muffled woofing you know, <laughs> inside the, the rat suits. And every now and then a leg would pull up inside the suit, and then the dog would start spinning around because it was only on three legs. And sadly, one of the dogs died. The dogs were from Pasadena, uh, excuse me, uh, Palm Springs, and they were insured for five thousand dollars each. And my job as the co-producer on it was to call the insurance company and file a claim. And I was told that uh, we had a one dog deductible.
1: <laughs> so um,
3: the movie came out, and I thought I had made it. I mean, there was a full page in the L. A. Times calendar section, and I thought, okay, my career in, as a screenwriter was like off and running. And I, I didn't work for two and a half years. I was, you know, back pumping gas and working in, in uh, restaurants and stuff. And I sort of happened into St. Elsewhere, and that's really where I learned how to write.
0: Did you? And how did that? How did you happen into it? Was it
3: uh, the usual method of
0: meetings and samples, or did you no. know someone involved?
3: Um, when I was going off to do the Rat movie, um, there was a guy who was a failed playwright who had come out here, uh, who knew Bruce Paltrow, and actually, he,
2: it was a dachshund in a playwright. Suit. <laughs>
3: He needed a place to stay, so he stayed in my apartment while I was out of town, and that was Tom Fontana yeah. um, and um, there was a famous New York playwright who they'd given an episode to, and he came out to write this thing only he nobody knew he had this terrible fucking cocaine problem so he wrote, went off to write a script and it was supposed to be the big script of the season. Blythe Danner was in it, and you know it was supposed to be this big deal. And he turns in 170 pages of blah, 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 because he was just on a jag. So Tom and and the writers on the show um, had to turn their attention to fix that in like three days, and that meant that the next script up wasn't being written. And my friend and I, uh, he had written an episode of Family. Um, we were working on something, so they said, "Well." You come and bring your friend, and, and that's how we ended up getting on staff.
2: And you just, a little bit of show business lore, Bruce Paltrow and Blythe Danner met.
3: Uh, well, they were already married. Already the,
2: married, had a daughter named.
3: Gwyneth. She was, uh, she was nine at the time, and she used to ride her bicycle around uh, uh, the office. And she ro- rode her bicycle into my <laughs> office one day. And she pointed to her braces, and she said, you know what these are? And I went, um, braces? And she goes, no, these are my Black & Decker Pecker (laughs) records. And I just went, oh, boy. (laughs) Sorry.
2: Hooray.
0: Uh, Andrew, let's talk about where you came from, how you broke in. Uh, you have a background, first as an actor. Hang on, actor. I have to cancel a date with Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> the braces are off now. Uh, a background That's... as an actor and as a screenwriter, right? Yeah, my, my
4: story could not be less interesting based on that, but uh, I Okay, was, we only have five more minutes. Yeah, good. I was an actor for a while, and, and uh, but not very good and not working very much and had a lot of free time. So I started, I started uh, writing with a couple other actors and... And then and then, my version of, of Roger Corman's story is, is I was writing and there were these Golan Globus producer guys. Sure, sure. These yeah. crazy Israelis who were making movies. And, and at one point Don't they said... Don't be redundant. Yeah, <laughs> and they said, uh, we're making um, uh, a movie with Dennis Rodman in the south of France. If you can pitch something, then you can go down there and write it like next week. So... I, I did with my then writing partner and, and uh, so we went to Nice with Dennis Rodman and um, Dane Cook <laughs> for two months and did that and, uh, and then came back and thought oh, I was going to be famous and, and the, uh, we didn't get a full page in the LA Times we had we had a, a double bill with us and Bowfinger but we were like, we at the one o'clock show and, and that was it what the, was uh, that movie? Simon
3: Says
2: okay it was called
3: and uh <laughs> Uh, did Don Borchers produce that?
2: Of all of their movies, no. That's my favorite no. one.
3: <laughs> he worked for those. Of guys. all
2: the Robin, of all the Robin, Robin Dane. Cook Dane
3: movies. Yeah.
4: Um, How long did you work with a partner? Ten years. Oh, really?
0: What happened? A nightmare.
4: <laughs> it, it, it ended badly. But really? Yeah.
0: That's too bad. Yeah. Uh, we won't get into it.
4: But off the record, we
0: will.
4: unless you want to, are you,
0: are you, do you want to talk about it?
4: No, I mean it was it was a it was a great experience because getting into writing without any kind of training it was a great way to you know stay motivated and to keep each other motivated and I I recommend it because again it's a tough discipline to figure out and at least with someone else you can keep each other going so it worked really well for us and we were broke and poor and. Playing video games a lot, and it just it was just an easy way to to do it but then
3: is your partner still in business I, I don't even know to this <laughs> his
4: uh, name was Muhammad Atta <laughs> <laughs> whatever his became of him Tom Fontana <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, but but then, at a certain point, we you know because we were just so desperate at the time you know we were just doing a Dennis problem or whatever came available to us when we actually had to think about what we wanted to do we it became uh, more obvious that we had wanted to do different things. and then, you know. Interesting. Um, but it was yeah. great in terms of going back to the room conversation. For a long time, it felt like I was, you know, before I was ever in a room, it felt like I was mm-hmm. right. kind of in a room because we right. were constantly pitching out loud and judging each other or trying not to judge each other or trying to, you mm-hmm. know, learn some of those tools that then, you know, became important to me later. So, I, again, it was... It was a valuable experience as a boy to just sitting around and there's not it, looking. Anymore. Yeah, there's,
2: the, the relief—the relief of writing alone is you're, you don't have to coordinate and you know, it's, but it, it's harder. Yeah. You know, there's no there's no one to bounce off of and you have to there's no one to make you work. Mm-hmm. You know.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, there's yeah. there's a big difference between sitting at home alone and yeah. it's very easy to check Facebook. But when yeah, your partner is sitting there across you from you, Facebook, you check your Facebook. Exactly. Suck at the bitch? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was the first thing you wrote without a partner and how was that adjustment? Uh,
4: I did... I developed a TV show for... Dennis I, Rodman I, and Dan Cook. Please say Dennis <laughs> Rodman and Dan Cook.
0: <laughs> a Fox
4: program. A sitcom that failed for some reason. Um, uh, I did... I, I mean, I just started writing specs. I, I, I came out of a writing partnership and it was very hard to reestablish myself on my own. So... I just started writing specs. I did this web series uh, just to try to figure out who I was on my own as a writer and then, and then eventually, you know, just kept writing and getting rejected and then finally, you know, pitched something to CW and, and, uh, and sold it and then sci-fi and mm-hmm. just started working my way up again. Interesting. So it really was like... Starting from scratch in a lot of ways. It was totally like mm-hmm. starting from scratch. I mean, other than some, having some experience, it was, from a business point of view, it was absolutely starting from scratch. Yeah. Because, you know, if you, when people hire
0: a team, they don't know who's doing all the work. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dana, we, we got your breaking in story uh, when last you were here. Yes. Let's talk about breaking out. Oh. Um, <laughs> what have you heard? <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you this. (laughs) Uh, No, tell us about what you're currently working on and the development process. Uh, Yes. Uh, Walk us through it if you can. And is it a typical one that you're having presently? Well, what I'm... No, this is a great... uh, I... uh,
2: Here's a great story. I'm currently working on a uh, a pilot for FX, a half-hour single-camera comedy, um, that uh, the genesis of it is really interesting. Um... The, the 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 cover story is uh, I'm creating a show based in the music industry and uh, it's produced by me and Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters. Well, we, yeah, we
0: talked about this a little bit. The Foo Fighters, yeah. um,
2: and the way it came about was um, I was writing uh, a movie for a producer at Warner Brothers called Alternadad, based on a, a book by Neil Pollock about you know what happens when a ro- young rocker has a kid and now you adjust your psyche to I'm also a father, but I still feel like I'm 21. How does, you know, it, it's, it's about growing up when you're too old to grow up. And I was a big fan of the Metallica documentary Some Kind of Monster. And, uh, and fascinated by psychiatrists in that world, my friend, uh, I have a very good friend who is a very close confidant of Brian Wilson's, who when Brian Wilson was famously living with his psychiatrist, uh, my friend was on a beeper in case... Brian Wilson, psychiatrist, wanted to get a hold of him, <laughs> and being a musician, I was just like, "Why'd you wear it?" And, Thank you, <laughs> you know. And uh, and I'm just and if you ever watch Let It Be, the Beatles documentary when they're breaking up on camera, you just it w- it would have been so much different if just one guy who was not afraid of them came into the room and said, "You're being a child. You're being passive aggressive. You're being manipulative, and you're checked out." <laughs> um, it would have been really interesting to see people that don't hear know a lot. And hearing no. And I said, there's a, there's a movie in there someplace. I don't know where it is, but there's a movie in there someplace. And me and this guy, who's very in the industry, kept batting it back and forth. We could never come up with a movie that was better than the one that had already been made, some kind of monster. Uh, and then one day, out of the, literally out of the blue, he just called me up and said, What if you did it as a TV show? And it was just like, "Ah, that's great. And so I came up with a story, not wanting to just ape what I'd already seen, came up with a story about a, a, a band that was a young band on the cusp of Breaking, uh, breaking Big uh, that had like two big albums and were on the cusp of like really cementing themselves or falling apart and the third album is usually when that happens and uh, what if the therapist was actually in the middle of a nervous breakdown as well and through a situation of circumstances he's the only person they'll go with uh, and But the thing was, you know, in this environment, you know, the way to sell it would be also, you know, we want to invest. I wanted to invest it with a, a sense of legitimacy and, and realism. So I know people that know Dave, and I brought it to him, and I said, would you like to be involved in this? And sort of grandfather, and you're a great resource for when I go into the bullshit area. And, and just keep it honest and keep it real, and also... To take the monkeys off it, you know, this isn't the monkeys. This is a yeah. this is a show about real people set in that world, and um, and that's how it came to be. So I'm currently writing that now. But unlike well, did the you have Simpsons, to go out and pitch it, or yeah, we pitched it no no no, no we we pitched it um, yeah. we pitched it uh, at uh, FX, Showtime, uh, Fox, NBC, a couple yeah. places. Um, NBC's reason for passing was interesting. We don't think the rock stars would be believable, which is interesting because the last time I checked, they were real. (laughs) Um, Be that as it may, uh, I thought FX afforded us the most freedom to do the show that we wanted to do, but and and I'll I'll wrap it up on this. It's interesting to write because it is said in reality, it's not like The Simpsons or anything where the the jokes are all coming from the characters and the situations. It's basically. um, There aren't jokes per se. It's about desperate people and very uh, trying times. Mm. And it's the comedy of that.
0: And it feels like that's sort of the way comedy is going, especially on cable. I mean, you look at the yeah, FX I agree. comedies. Yeah, it is. It's it's Wilfred. It's and in its Archer. Home. Yeah,
2: yeah it's, it's, it's in the right
0: it place. Right. It's, it's good. Right place. And it's been a, a good process, the development. So far, yeah. I'm I, I sure I'll have some other things. stories later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, phone in. Phone in. As yes. soon
2: as you get a story. The only thing I can tell you about developing a show is. Everything is always great.
0: (laughs) Um, Do you guys have any questions? We have time for one or two. I'm just curious where show Bibles play into your development process when you're writing pilots or trying to get a series off the ground. Anyone who wants to answer?
3: Uh, I've never really used a Bible. I know a lot of people do. Um, Did
0: you have to do one in developing a show?
3: I I never have, no. I mean, it... Probably to our detriment on Dark Angel, um, because that was a show with, you know, the, the network could never really figure out what that show was about. Um, so that created enough of a vacuum for them to come in and tell us what it was about, only that changed every week. So and they sort of screwed up the show. I, a Bible might have mitigated against that, but. My experience has been that if you have a Bible that really lays it all out, then you end up sort of artificially steering toward a point and you you run the risk of depriving yourself of making discoveries along the way i mean it 's nice to have some sort of big kind of tentpoles uh, right. tentpole ideas for for a season or even the show in general but um, we, um, didn't, we didn't we didn 't really figure out what the end of the shield was probably until the second to last season, but then once we did, we knew where we were headed. The Simpsons. Jim
2: Brooks sort of acts as a human Bible, where he will—he is involved in the show still, and he does come in and, and at uh, the you know, it's like remember the show is this. It's you know, it's like don't go too far. Remember, it's this, and there's a re, you know, and it's all about Homer and Marge love each other, and they have each other's back, and it's a very strong. It's a very strong family unit. And when, you'll find that the shows never go too far afield of that for too long. Yeah. And they always, they always cut back.
0: Yeah, Tim Long was here a few weeks ago uh, right. talking oh, about you're. that very thing and right. how uh, it can be terrifying for a writer to go into oh, that God, pitch meeting. Oh, God, horrible. <laughs> uh, i not sure if he's going to swing too hard or if it's going to go too hard. Right, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: That's
0: interesting. Uh, That's jive, he'll say. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you had mentioned having a game plan going into secret circle. Uh, did you have to do a Bible as part of the development process
4: um, i had to I had to pitch out you know in, with the pilot we had to pitch out the season or a a a concept for the season mm-hmm. the, in sort of in three sections. But when we got picked up we we in a more organic way started creating a Bible, which was sort of based on these are what we think the characters are at least right now these are this is the world this is in our show like the nature of, like Dan was saying before but the nature of witchcraft and what it ours is based on and i i like it because we just keep it feels like it keeps growing and then it becomes a good reference tool because similarly we don't have we don't have jim brooks running around but we can go it's synthesized in a way where you can go back and say no 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 this the point of this relationship this is where we were. That's where our heads were at when we started it, and it's a good thing to, to remember. And, and then we also use it just to keep track of, you know, we did that stupid spell, and that's not Latin, and that kind of thing. <laughs> but, uh, that's what you I- have I- uh, writer's assistance for, right? Yeah, and, and our writer's assistance gets into it, and so it becomes something that we all use a lot.
0: Okay. Uh, any other questions out here? No, my question's uh, mostly for Andrew, like in regards to balancing large numbers of characters. Because I noticed you guys often send them away or kill them in order to get them out of the way for the story to keep going. So I was just wondering how that kind of comes together.
4: You know, we have a large cast, and many of the cast members are you know seasoned players, and some aren't. And they're, they can be a huge pain in the ass because they're booking other jobs or they're busy, and it, it dictates our story more than I wish it did. But very, very often we'll say, Okay we're going to do this with so and so and they're like no he just booked a commercial in louisiana and we can't have him and then and then we kill him or <laughs> we you know we plan out these arcs for people and then they get other jobs or they don't want to do it or they want too much money and then it really ends up dictating story in a in a surprising when we all get excited in the room with a story idea and then we just can't do it for various production reasons and then we have to shift accordingly.
3: It's really one of the pitfalls of episodic storytelling is, you know, they'll tell you how many actors you can have for a season. And 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 the deals are, you know, I don't know. How many episodes do you do?
4: We do 22, but, but right. some, you know, some are all, we have a very popular character on our show who we can't use for all episodes, like right. you're saying. So we can only use him for you know, we, 9 we, out of 13.
3: On The Shield, we would have, you know, series regulars. It's all produced. So that means that you've got to use that person every week. And if the story is veering away from them and you're, that person's getting paid a lot of money, there's going to be some pressure from the network and the studio or whatever. Well, wait a minute. Why are we paying this person $25,000 if they're not in the next three episodes? Um, so there's that. And then... Um, some of them are like you know in cable seven thirteenths deals where we use them seven out of thirteen episodes and we have to figure out how to how to uh, uh, parse that out over the course of a of a season, and then uh, um, sometimes you you know you just take a flyer. I mean, in the last season of The Shield, we had this storyline with Franca Patenta, and we'd had some pretty good luck that that you know usually. Anthony Anderson was an example where we didn't have an overall deal with him but we kept liking to write for him and it just so happened that he was available or we were able to make the dates work if it didn't work in this episode could you slide it a week and make it work in the next one but we had we fell in love with Franca and came up with a cool storyline for her and then she went and got the Che Guevara movie and was in the jungles of Brazil for like you know six months and so we just had to write that off but um, more often than not we would find that those actors that we really wanted were available and if there was, if there was willingness on their part to work with us we would, we'd make, figure out a way to make it work
0: Would you advise these guys in writing their sample pilots to uh, keep the cast limited to not write big parts for a person who's only going to appear in that pilot
4: I mean uh, it we I, I I started with a book that had twelve main characters and cut it down to six yeah. or thirteen because it's just it's just too hard. And then if they need to have relationships with people or boyfriends or girlfriends or you know their own stories, it just becomes it becomes tough to do. Especially when you're talking about all episodes produced and mm-hmm. exactly the chip was.
2: Yeah, there are a lot of just nuts and bolts uh, things that go into the designing your season that. It's not always what works best for the season first. There's a lot of you only have this actor, you can't have this actor, you can't have that many actors. This location, yeah, well, you got to make it. Yeah. You got to make it work a different way.
3: The same thing is true with sets. I mean, if you're going to shoot a show, and in, in the case of The Shield, seven days, you're going to be under an enormous amount of pressure to make sure that that four of those seven days are shot on the set on stage, you know, in the police station. Same with Powers. Um, because it's simply too expensive to go out on location and do company moves uh, uh, out in the world Um, which means that especially a show like Paris which is a fairly external show um, or at least the graphic novel suggests that we have to figure out a way to bring those stories into the police station so that we can shoot them um, economically and make our days Uh, because if you don't make your days you're not going to get picked up Mm
0: -hmm. yeah uh, and this is just the tiny Jane Espenson on my shoulder telling you this. But uh, in writing your sample pilots, you don't have to worry about these things if you know they are just going to be sample pilots. Right. You know, mm-hmm. Put whoever you want in it. Put as many locations as you want it. These are things that don't need to be produced. They just have to show what a great writer you are. Uh, let me ask but you guys, don't. But
2: don't, I, I would advise, don't write things that are innately unfilmable. Mm-hmm. Thousands of soldiers swarm the wall. Right.
0: Because you're just well, thousands c- of soldiers on horses. Yeah. Exactly.
3: <laughs> oh, no offense.
0: Um, and a-
3: also, I mean, the, rea- the reality is when you. S- if you're pitching to HBO,
0: don't write anything
2: involving horses.
4: <laughs> That's not what I meant. <laughs>
3: the reality is though that you know when you're sitting down you're usually reading those writing samples because there's a job open and you've got a you know the agents are inundating you with scripts and you've got to go through a pile of scripts like this and if you're reading somebody's specs pilot and there's 17 main recurring characters or something it's very hard to follow um Especially if it's a show that you know that exists in your head, you really have to invite somebody into your narrative, and that h- happens a lot better if it's iris down onto a few characters.
0: Yeah. Good advice. Uh, let me just ask you guys quickly before we wrap up: um, What are you watching on television? What are your current rooms talking about? What is getting you excited about TV or about writing in general? Uh, and Dana, we actually didn't answer this last time you were here, so why don't we start with you? Uh, my uh, I don't watch a lot of
2: comedy, which is because it's just work for me, you know, so I, uh, I, uh, you know, I, I love Mad Men, I love Game of Thrones, I like big Wagnerian stories, uh, and then I watch, uh, you know, the, if I get to watch three or four shows regularly, because I also have three kids that are little, so I don't watch, a lot of my television is... Stuff I don't really want to watch. Phineas and Ferb. Uh, a lot of Phineas. Now. I don't mind Phineas and Ferb. Well, it's, it's good fun. The starter sitcoms on the Disney Channel. <laughs> ah, it's a yeah. lot of bad. Um, but uh, and uh, you know uh, real time, I watch real time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I you know, I watch Chris Matthews. No, I'm just <laughs> I watch Chris Matthews because he's so contained and elegant.
1: <laughs> <laughs> good start,
0: pal, and make fun of the Secret Service that's a good uh, Andrew, what are you watching
4: on television? Um, I watch <laughs> more comedies than
2: yeah. Oh, well, yeah, that, but yeah. that makes perfect sense. Yeah. That makes perfect sense.
4: I watch Community mm-hmm. uh, and New Girl and um, uh, and then Game of Thrones and Mad Men and okay. and those shows. But I'm a, I'm a big fan of Community because uh, in terms of inspiration, because you can tell that everybody on that show gets along so well <laughs> on camera
2: and off. Happy family. <laughs>
4: What a, what a terrible thing now to watch it. It's,
2: it's, it's less fun for me.
4: Oh,
3: I
2: know. All the magic though. happens in the hat. Leave the magic in the hat.
4: <laughs> yeah, But, but, but they're I'm, an ambitious show. I mean, I, that, that's what I, what I like yeah, about yeah. Community is, is, is funny or not funny, win or lose. I, 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 like, I like watching shows where it feels like people are leaving it on the field all the time. And it yeah, feels yeah. like that's a show that I don't think it always works necessarily, but I feel like they're busting their ass to entertain yeah. you. Yes And there's a vision And they're working hard And it, it, it doesn't feel like they're, they're kind of Laying it off easy So I, I, in terms of inspiration I like, I like that Because I think it's something Good to aspire to Yeah
1: I
3: absolutely agree uh,
0: Chick, what are you watching?
3: I watch uh, Jeopardy <laughs> I watch the uh, Jimmy Kimmel monologue Every night um, I watch um, Curb Your Enthusiasm Pawn Stars. And a lot bre- of people
0: watch Pawn Stars who do these panels. Yeah. Oh, I I've love Chumley.
3: Chumley is the most amazing dude.
0: <laughs> oh, I do. I do. I, storage Wars, I watch. And, <laughs> and that's the
3: other one. And I watch Breaking Bad.
2: Sure.
0: Yeah. You, well, we all have to. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the job. Uh, please give a round of applause to our panelists tonight <laughs> Daniel Gould, Andrew Miller, and Chick Eckley. Thanks to everyone here at Nerdist Industries and Meltdown Comics, and to 826LA, and to Dan Byrne for writing our theme song. Good night.